The following is a presentation of Gallery Church Downtown, part of a family of neighborhood churches seeking to display God's greatness to the world. For more information, please visit gcbdowntown.com. Good morning, everybody. We'll be reading from Acts chapter 23 this week. If you have one of the Bibles that's laid out around the room, that starts on page 1118. Acts chapter 23. Paul looked straight at the Sanhedrin and said, My brothers, I have fulfilled my duty to God in all good conscience to this day. At this, the high priest Ananias ordered those standing near Paul to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God will strike you, you whitewashed wall. You sit there to judge me according to the law, yet you yourself violate the law by commanding that I be struck. Those who were standing near Paul said, How dare you insult God's high priest? Paul replied, Brothers, I did not realize that he was the high priest, for it is written, Do not speak evil about the ruler of your people. Then Paul, knowing that some of them were Sadducees and the others Pharisees, called out in the Sanhedrin, My brothers, I am a Pharisee, descended from Pharisees. I stand on trial because of the hope of the resurrection of the dead. When he said this, a dispute broke out between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. The Sadducees say that there is no resurrection and that there are neither angels nor spirits, but the Pharisees believe all these things. There was a great uproar, and some of the teachers of the law who were Pharisees stood up and argued vigorously. We find nothing wrong with this man, they said. What if a spirit or an angel has spoken to him? The dispute became so violent that the commander was afraid Paul would be torn to pieces by them. He ordered the troops to go down and take him away from them by force and bring him into the barracks. The following night, the Lord stood near Paul and said, Take courage. As you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. The next morning, some Jews formed a conspiracy and bound themselves with an oath not to eat or drink until they had killed Paul. More than 40 men were involved in this plot. They went to the chief priests and the elders and said, We have taken a solemn oath not to eat anything until we have killed Paul. Now then, you and the Sanhedrin petition the commander to bring him before you on the pretext of wanting more accurate information about his case. We are ready to kill him before he gets here. But when the son of Paul's sister heard of this plot, he went into the barracks and told Paul. Then Paul called one of the centurions and said, Take this young man to the commander. He has something to tell him. So he took him to the commander. The centurion said, Paul, the prisoner, sent for me and asked me to bring this young man to you because he has something to tell you. The commander took the young man by the hand, drew him aside and asked, what is it you want to tell me? He said, some Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul before the Sanhedrin tomorrow on the pretext of wanting more accurate information about him. Don't give in to them because more than 40 of them are waiting in ambush for him. They have taken an oath not to eat or drink until they have killed him. They are ready now, waiting for your consent and to their request. The commander dismissed the young man with this warning. Don't tell anyone that you have reported this to me. Then he called two of his centurions and ordered them, Get ready a detachment of 200 soldiers, 70 horsemen, and 200 spearmen to go to Caesarea at nine tonight. Provide horses for Paul so that he may be taken safely to Governor Felix. He wrote a letter as follows. Claudius Lysias, to his excellency, Governor Felix. Greetings. This man was seized by the Jews, and they were about to kill him. 
But I came with my troops and rescued him, for I had learned that he is a Roman citizen. I wanted to know why they were accusing him, so I brought him to their Sanhedrin. I found that the accusation had to do with questions about their law, but there was no charge against him that deserved death or imprisonment. When I, informed, when I was informed of a plot to be carried out against the man, I sent him to you at once. I also ordered his accusers to present to you their case against him. So the soldiers carrying out their orders took Paul with them during the night and brought him as far as Antipatris. The next day they let the cavalry go on with him while they returned to the barracks. When the cavalry arrived in Caesarea, they delivered the letter to the governor and handed Paul over to him. The governor read the letter and asked what province he was from. Learning that he was from Cilicia, he said, I will hear your case when your accusers get here. Then he ordered that Paul be kept under guard in Herod's palace. God bless the reading of his word. Well, Gallifrey, it's good to be with you guys. Um, I, I always hate when I come into church that I don't feel like I'm at my best to give you my best. But I do think there's some really important things. So if you could like lean in uh, mentally or just with your attentiveness um, a little bit stronger than you normally might so that you can find some diamonds in the rough today. Can I just say one thing that I want to stand out to you? We are now in Acts chapter 23, and there are still red letters in Acts 23. Okay, can I just let that set in just for a minute? You know what the red letters represent? Jesus is speaking. We're, we're at least 20 years after the ascension of Christ in this passage, at least 20 um, and by the names of the Romans that are mentioned in here, it's a way for them to date and be able to look more accurately at the strategic time and place that this was taking place. And I think some of you need to hear this this morning. There is red letters still available to you and us, to you and me. Jesus can still talk to you. He can still give good Lord commands. Like, he is still Lord he is still communicating. This book of Acts is about what Jesus is still up to in and through you and me. And so over the last couple of weeks, we've talked a lot about being confident. And can I just say, when you get red letters, you, your confidence level goes through the roof. And so if we've agreed on anything these last couple of weeks is that through the course of the, the, the writing in the book of Acts, Luke is making it evidently clear that Paul has a prayer life. Paul has this discourse, not of just times where he postures himself to get down on his face before God, which obviously he has, but he has an ongoing daily conversation with Jesus. And I just want to say to you and I today is like, could we just mature in that this year, all of us learning that I'm, I'm about ready to walk into church, Father, speak to me. I'm going to work today right now, God. Would you speak to me? Father, I just watched this documentary on oppression, and I am frustrated and angry. Father, what should I do, right? Like, how can we bring prayer into every aspect of everything that we're doing, realizing that you can get red letters back? You can get actual words that are spoken to you. I had a phone call this week um, from a relative that really moved me because this particular person had a red letter week. And I can't begin to tell you the joy that it is to talk to somebody that knows that Jesus spoke to them. And I just want to say to you, God wants to do that. There is not a limitation. This is not just Paul's narrative. 
This is not just something for Paul. It's for all of us. And no matter whether you've been to church all of your life since your parents birthed you and they took you to church and they had you baptized or whatever, or this is your first time ever coming to church, I just want you to know it is a fact. Jesus still talks. He can still communicate to us. So let me, let me get now to what I feel like are the three major points out of this passage. There's a lot of great history. For you that are history buffs, this is a chapter that you just need to look at and go in and search all the names and look up all the history behind all of it. But just for the sake of time and energy this morning, I'm not going to focus as much on the history. But Paul's story of the trial, as recorded by Luke, teaches us three things. And let me just give them to you up front. Number one, once again, the moment of crisis becomes a moment of vision. Paul is not out of trouble, but he is being affirmed of a vision that God's given him. I'm going to come back to that in just a minute. The second thing is, there's a question I wanted to ask. Is Paul living out the Lord's Prayer? When you read this passage and you maybe do a parallel Bible thing on your app where you have Acts 23 open and the Lord's Prayer open, and you're reading what's going on in Paul's life from Acts 20, Acts 21, Acts 22, Acts 23, and you read the Lord's Prayer, could we find that there maybe are some parallels to him actually living his life according to the Lord's Prayer? We're going to talk about that in just a minute. And then the third thing, God is going to be faithful, so Paul is going to be faithful to him. Paul was confident that God was going to be faithful, And so Paul was confident that he was going to be faithful to God no matter what. Now that is a totally different level of like confidence and maturity that I hope I can do a good moment on. So let me go back to the first. The moment of crisis becomes a moment of vision. We don't fully get the Pharisees and the Sadducees other than the fact that if you've gone to church very long, you know that Methodists have jokes about Presbyterians. Presbyterians have jokes about Baptists. Baptists have jokes about everybody but themselves, right? And so when you begin to look at denominations, you can begin to see where they can claim the same holy books. You can claim the same holy gods, but yet you can have many different divisions amongst you. Can I not get an amen to the truth of that? If you've been around Galilee Church long enough, you'll know that if you do a Google search, you'll come up with over 140 different Baptist denominations in the United States of America. So how many ways can a Baptist divide the Bible and their theology and come up with so many different denominations, let alone the 18 or 19 Presbyterian denominations that are now out there? So even the divisions amongst divisions amongst divisions amongst divisions, at least in Jesus' day, there were just a couple of divisions amongst the Jews. The two primary divisions amongst Judaism was the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and there were also zealots that were out there, but there was like two major denominations. And so this tribal group that has formed this council that Paul is standing in front of is made up of Jewish religious leaders that have both Pharisees and Sadducees sitting in as overseers of Paul's accusation, and they both sit trying to honor their holy God and reverence the law, but yet Paul here in Luke's writings shares the major difference. And in the midst of this, Paul is brilliant because he drops a bomb in the group and then sits back and watches them tear each other apart. Because what was the most controversial subject matter between Pharisees and Sadducees of this time period? Resurrection. Paul, I believe, through the power of God's Spirit... Um, and through just the immense confidence that comes in the red letters that are spoken to him in the night from Christ, is that 
the Lord was giving him what he needed to get to another day so he ultimately could get to where God wanted him to, which was Rome. And so there was one way that he could get the, the deflection off of him because, again, he had followed all of the Jewish customs. If, if there's anything in Judaism, Paul never claimed to be perfect. What he did claim was that when he made a mistake, he made it right. That's why he went to the temple and went through the ritual cleaning and paid the, the prices, the price that needed to be paid for others so that he could say, look, if I have offended, if I have done anything wrong, I've gone through the law in order to stand before you so that I can be here to share with you what has to be said to you about the resurrected Jesus Christ. And so for both Pharisees and Sadducees, a buzzword is Gentile, especially Gentile inclusion. But then the difference between Pharisees and Sadducees was resurrection. Because Sadducees didn't believe in a resurrection, they didn't believe in any afterlife, they didn't believe in any spirits, where the Pharisees, on the other hand, were like, yeah, there is a holding place for your soul until the final resurrection when God judges the world and reestablishes people in, in, in earth. And so imagine, they are now raging war over theological issues. We actually have about 12 young men that are in the room today that are from Liberty University that are studying to be people like me. Can we say a prayer for them that they'll change their minds? Right? <laughs> Um, but they want to be pastors. And so they are out looking in urban settings like Baltimore and trying to learn and say, Father, teach us, show us, what is it that you want us to do? Now, could you imagine a group of pastors arguing over a theological issue? We actually don't have to do that. You could just look at the National Day of Prayer that took place this week and watch how pastors through social media have been arguing and responding to things that took place in and around this time of prayer for the nation and based upon, well, who prayed, who was there, why were they there, what were they doing, all these different things. So we know what conflict looks like amongst people that claim Jesus Christ. We've seen it. We've experienced it. Some of us have even been involved in it ourselves. And, and so now we have a room where there's Pharisees and Sadducees, and they are now arguing over resurrection. And at least Paul had friends in the Pharisees because they were at least willing to meet Paul halfway. They weren't arguing with Paul that there was no such thing as resurrection they were saying, well, maybe they didn't, he didn't see Jesus bodily resurrected. They saw the angel that was Jesus waiting for the resurrection. And so that really ticked off the Sadducees. And so they were, they literally probably had Paul in between the two of them. No, we want Paul. No, we want Paul. No, we want Paul. And the Romans were like, wait, they're going to split the dude in half. They're going to literally tear him apart. Because they both want a stake in him for different reasons. They both want to do something to him that is going to be extremely painful. So they take Paul back into custody. But I don't know if we push past something that might be really important for our time. Because Paul had been gone from Jerusalem for about how many years? Twenty. So it's very likely that he wasn't fully aware of everything that had been happening because was he not a Pharisee of, him, of himself when we meet him for the first time? Was he not commissioned by Pharisees to go kill Christians when we meet him standing over Stephen and, and then in the subsequent chapters afterwards where he's packed up people to go and search them out? So he had relationships with many of them and now he's standing in a room and he's being told by one of them um, that somebody punched the man in the mouth. Now, I don't, haven't been in many meetings 
where somebody actually said that, that they wanted that to happen. But that is a very strong possibility in some of your work, right? Where somebody is just like, would somebody just stand up and hit that guy in the mouth? Well, Paul hears that being said, and he looks at the man that said it, and he's like, how, you know, you can't, you can't say that. But do you not realize that, I don't know, usually the high priest was wearing some sort of distinguishing clothing to show that he was, but apparently in this instant, he wasn't wearing the high priest clothing. And I think it's really important for you and I to see this. Because when Paul realizes that it was the high priest, he apologizes. He apologizes for speaking badly of somebody that wanted to punch him in the mouth. And can we go back two weeks? Who does God want us to love? Even those people that what? Falsely accuse us. People that are our enemies. People. And so Paul was going back to saying, you know what? God has for all along, and we don't have time to get into Romans and how we respect people in authority, but there is something, especially in this day and time in the country we now live, where we as Christians have got to take a deep breath and ask the Holy Spirit to guide us because there is time for us to speak and there's also times for us to make sure that we are not speaking against people that God has in authority over us. And so when we look at this, this is just something not for us to solve today. I just want you to sit with it because here Paul is saying, you are the high priest. Now, you might be an evil one and you might not be serving rightly, but that particular seat has been a seat of authority and God has worked through leadership and government all throughout the church history and all throughout world history. And he's like, I am going to, I need to honor the position you're in, but I don't necessarily need to support you. And so there's so much in this that I feel like could be good for us to ponder. And I really want you to take time to sit with it this week and see how Paul wrestled with it. The second part of this, the question, is Paul living out the Lord's Prayer? Look at what's been happening to him. He's been kept in a hole in the ground for two years. If you know anything about Rome, did Rome feed its prisoners? No. Did Rome provide them cable television? No. Did Rome provide them air conditioning in a weight room? No, there was nothing provided for anybody in prison. And that's why in the last chapter, when it says very specifically that the, the governor or the tribune allowed people to come and care for Paul while he was imprisoned, that's important line of information. That means that they were allowing people to come and drop food into the hole that he was in so that he could eat allowing him to bring him blankets, bring him clothing, sit with him, talk with him so he wasn't alone by himself. There is so much about Paul's story where he was in a place where he could do nothing for himself for two years, facing false accusations, having a desire to complete the work that God asked him to complete, and he is sitting in a hole. So I put a couple of things, and I had Josie put them on a slide for us. Listen to the rhythm of this. If there is danger, let it be averted. In this particular passage of scripture, there are a group of men that make a vow that they won't eat until they kill Paul. That's pretty extreme. But he didn't die. So I wonder how many, like, mom, dad's looking really famished. Well, six months ago, he said he wasn't going to, you know, I mean, seriously, I mean, but they they went to their religious leaders and said, we've made this vow. We're going to kill Paul. Like how far down before they found a loophole to say, well, you're out of your commitment. Right? I mean, it's, it, I could imagine, that, why isn't daddy eating? Well, he vowed to kill somebody. Um, 
And so he's in danger, but he, but the, but is, but it's averted. There's a small child in play here. Because that's why I, I loved even just hearing Arthur come into the room just a few moments ago. We can't underestimate what God's going to do through a child. We can't underestimate what God wants to do through people that you and I would view as weak and insignificant. Um, this child that's a relative of Paul overhears, and if you've ever been to the Middle East, they call it the Middle Eastern telephone, by the way. It's like they don't even have to talk on the phone and word spreads because it's just culture to ask a lot of questions. Like I see a whole lot of white people by the Wailing Wall. Where are they from? Oh, Maryland. Oh, so there's that group from Maryland. And they just, and the word spreads all over the Middle East. It's just a cultural phenomenon. And so could you imagine the nephew of Paul, like hearing some other kids saying, yeah, my dad vowed that he wasn't going to eat until Paul's dead. And they have no idea that this is Paul's nephew because Paul's been gone for 20 years. Wait a minute, they're talking about my uncle. And then he goes running off and tells Paul, and then Paul's like, hey, nephew, thanks. This is a great word. Now go tell somebody important that can do something about it, right? And so isn't it a crazy way how the Spirit of God got involved in this child and actually averted a tragedy? There's malice. Let it be thwarted. Uh, there's, a, there's temptation. Give me strength to resist it. So much of this is prevalent in the last few chapters in Acts. If I really need something, let it be provided. And always, not, with, not my will be done, but yours. And always, your kingdom come and not mine. Is there not a rhythm of how Paul is living his life through this prayer? We are really a blessed people. The majority of us in this room are employed, or we're students living on student loans, and we're eating. Right? And so we are growing and being provided for, and we have so much available to us. But you and I have got to learn to be Lord's Prayer people. We have got to learn what it looks like to lean in to Jesus being Lord, where we can look at Jesus in the face and say, your will being done, and we mean it. We can say your will being done all the time and then not mean it. Can we just be honest about that? So often our prayers are trying to convince God that his red letters to us are wrong. Like you know that God has said something to you about who you are or what it is that's going on in your life or the circumstances around you, but yet you look back at him and like, nah, can we change that? Does your words come with an eraser? Can I can I at least move the sentence structure around a little bit, maybe change this a little bit? Because that's the posture of heart because we want to be Lord of our own life. When in actuality, Jesus is Lord, and Paul could sit in a hole in the ground and pray daily and write letters to the church through the hole in the ground to encourage them because he knew what God had said he was going to do through him. So he woke up every day in prison and continued to faithfully do what he could do for that calling because he knew what God had said to him. And even when he was probably the most discouraged, the reassuring voice of the Spirit would come. All right, the last point. God is going to be faithful, so Paul was going to be faithful to him. I think it's important for me to stress something that really jumped out in this passage for me. The majority of the image of people that talk about theology or the the people that shape words about who God is, I don't generally think about people that are in holes in the ground 
when I think about people that, that are paid or research or understand old languages or go back to original manuscripts to kind of articulate what the scriptures, whether the, the Jewish scriptures of the Old Testament or the, the, the letters to the early church that we call the New Testament or any of the people that try to make that, I generally imagine a very large, well-polished, wooden academic desk with a library with my lustful ladders I love the ladders in libraries. That's what I want in my home someday. Is a, I want to be able to jump on a ladder and just slide and and just look at my books. That's just that may never happen. But when I think of people that actually tell us what the Bible means, I think of people that are sitting in these personal posh libraries with a fireplace crackling and whether and, and me it would be coffee some of you are more of hot tea people but that their their desks are piled with books and notes and but it's all paper books it's not everything electronic right there might be something they can type on but that's kind of what i view in my mind of what people that actually research and tell us but do you understand that the letters that we are interpreting today were written by paul he was working out words about God and the theology about God while he was falsely imprisoned, having his daily bread provided for him, was suffering flogging and persecution, and people were wanting to kill him, wanting to do all these evil things against him. Many times he didn't know where he was going to end up in the next city. He would be put in a carriage and taken from one city to the next. There's just so much of Paul's life that was in the trenches and the pains of sickness and snake bites and shipwrecks and storms and all this kind of stuff. And that is where the theology and the words about God were worked out in Paul's life. He wasn't sitting in an academic institution somewhere studying what other people said about God. He was writing what he believed in. Can I also say this? He was also writing words about what was believed to be true about God in an era where everybody had an opinion of why things were happening the way they were. Everybody had gods. It was a society of people that everybody had a God for a reason why everything was happening from food to famine from sickness to health, from riches to poor, all the things that would be in a vows between a, a married couple, right? They had a reason and a God for everything. And in the midst of Paul's time and era and all the different gods and all the different powers that were at work and the oppression of Rome and people seeing people on crosses on nearly on every road in human society at this point in time, you can't forget that. This was an era where, where Romans were hanging people on crosses daily like you couldn't go to work without seeing somebody hung on a cross could you imagine what that would have been like and so that is the life and the pressure and the refining fire where paul is saying his words to us about what the holy spirit is telling him to encourage these churches in about who jesus really is and what that looks like and i think it's really important for us to realize that that is what this truth is coming from not from some hall of academia, but from real life. And you are experiencing real life. So can I say it again? Your real life can refine red letters for you. Jesus, in the power of the Spirit, can still speak to you. God can grow you, mature you, much like Paul said to the church in Ephesus in Ephesians chapter 1 and 2, because we are loved by God in Jesus Christ, we now have access to the Holy Spirit who secures us in Jesus, who gives us wisdom, who gives us revelation, and can give us power. 
And that means that there are red letters accessible to you where then once you hear them, you can embrace them, you can hold on to them, and you can know that they're coming, that they're going to be true in you because God has been faithful. And he will always be faithful. And when he says something to you, he means it. I love the fact that in this passage, it's like as if Paul has proverbially grabbed a hold of an anchor and he's going wherever that anchor takes him. Now, that's difficult because Paul's been thrown in the ground a lot. He's been beaten and flogged and held up in tribunals. And he's had to use his Roman citizenship and his Jewish rights to his advantage when he can, all because God wants to get him to Rome. So today, I just want, I wonder how confident you are that God is faithful to his promises. I mean, what really, if we were to do an, a meter check this morning, like, is God faithful or is he not? Like, and if we were to respond to that, there'd be some of you that would be jubilant, yes, he is, and others of you that would be like, I wish I could be that enthusiastic. And today, my prayer is, is that whether through sickness or through music or through whatever circumstances might be around us, is that we walk out of here saying, I remember a time when God spoke to me. I would have a feeling that there are many of you in here that have actually said the words to somebody. I think God spoke to me about this. Now, it may have been a few years ago, but if God has done that for you, would he not do it again? Do we need to just have a few moments this morning while those songs are being sung as we prepare to go to the Lord's table to say, wow, God, I, I know that I've said these things. What did you tell me the last time we spoke? What did you say to me? Some of you are like, well, I've never had that type of encounter. Well, you know what? Maybe today in the stillness of our morning, you might just say for the first time, speak, Lord, um, I'm listening. And then just maybe that's your prayer you carry out all week long because we know that our Father in heaven is speaking to us. We know that our Lord knows the right things to do. He's bringing his kingdom. He's bringing his will. And as crazy as things might be in the world right now, and as crazy as things might be in regards to the political climate of our country and all the different tensions that are out there, Jesus is still seated on the throne. Jesus is still speaking red letters towards us, and we can still be obedient to those things. So let's pray together. Father, I thank you for passages like Romans, uh, Acts 23. Um, Father, in my physical body, I wish I had more strength to do it more justice. But Father, I ask that your spirit would just let resonate in people's lives what needs to be there. And so, Lord, right now I ask that there would be a sense in us that you are Lord. That there would be a growing maturity in us to be obedient to you as Lord. And that our obedience, no matter how difficult it might be, that we would have confidence to know that the Lord Jesus Christ spoke to us. The Lord Jesus Christ asked us to do this. And so even if it's a hole in the ground or a skyscraper office, it doesn't matter. Father, we want to be obedient to what you've asked us to do. We want to be good stewards of what you've asked us to do. And Father, right now we know that we are to be a light and so, Father, would you help us to grow in our confidence to let people know why we have the hope we found in Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, today, would you continue to give strength? Would you continue to give comfort? Would you continue to bring healing? And, Father, would you continue to remind us of all the ways that you've been faithful? 
And Father, would we walk out of here encouraged knowing that you will continue to be faithful. We pray this in Jesus' name.